Engaging Leader, episode 167, How Top Performers Work Less and Achieve More, featuring Dr. Morton Hansen. inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, Engagers. I'm excited to introduce today's guest, Dr. Morton Hansen, as we talk about how top performers work less and achieve more. But first, I want to mention that if you've been listening to episodes 164 and 165, as I talked through the outstanding book, The One Thing, The Surprisingly Simple Truth Behind Extraordinary Results by Gary Keller, we are going to pick that back up in episode 168. Uh, Episodes 167 and 166 are going to feature interviews with two authors that I'm really excited about, Todd Henry and today is Morton Hansen. Um, But I think you're going to find that today's discussion about how top performers work less and achieve more ties exactly into the whole theme of the book, The One Thing. So you're going to pick up, if you've been listening, you're going to love this conversation because it goes right hand in hand and provides some tips and tricks that actually help you apply the truth behind extraordinary results. That is the topic of The One Thing. So we'll pick The One Thing back up next week. Today, we're going to talk about a brand new book, Great at Work, How Top Performers Do Less, Work Better, and Achieve More. And our guest is the author, Dr. Morton Hansen. He's a management professor at University of California in Berkeley. And he's the co-author with Jim Collins of the New York Times bestseller, Great by Choice, which I absolutely love that book and still think about it. Uh, I've read it a good five or six years ago and still apply those principles today. Fantastic book. Dr. Hansen has been working for the last five years on a huge, big new study, and that's the result of this book. And it's all about answering the question, why do some people perform better at work than others? Seems like a simple question, but it continues to confound leaders as well as all of us who want to advance and succeed at work while maintaining balance and well-being. This book digs into the results from a huge groundbreaking study of more than 5,000 managers and employees. And the bottom line is that it shows that top performers actually work less, but the book also gets into the tricks that they use to accomplish much more. So they work less, but they get a lot more important things done. And the data shows that they're considered a much higher performer by their boss, by their leaders at work. These practices that they use to work smarter instead of working harder really work, really do pay off. In fact, they've, a lot of them fly right in the face of our basic work harder conventions. So I'm really excited to get into this with Dr. Morton. I think it's important for all of us in our individual work, but especially in our role as leaders. If we can apply this for ourselves, we're going to be a lot better leaders as we help all of the people on our team be better performers. Dr. Hansen, welcome to Engaging Leader. Thank you, Jesse. It's a pleasure to be here. Morton, uh, why do we often equate more hours worked with better performance? I think it's an ingrained work ethic that we have in our economy. And that is we believe that we perform better the more hours we work. 
and it turns out to be a fallacy. And it's so easy to fall into that trap. I mean, when I started out in my own career, that was my strategy. I was going to be a great performer because I was going to work many, many hours. And it turns out beyond some threshold, it's just not true. So we need to change the way we work. And that's what my data shows. Tell us about the threshold, because I was especially surprised by that. It seems like you see a lot of people these days saying, you know, work less. And, um, but, but you weren't really necessarily saying, hey, get a, work four hours a week. You actually had a, a, a threshold that came out in the data. Yeah. So what I do as an academic is that I, I go to data. I look for the evidence and I try to analyze the data. So what we did underlying this book is to analyze a data set of 5,000 people across corporate America, across functions, across roles, sort of senior people uh, down to junior people. And when you look at the data, what you're seeing is really a, an inverted uh, U, if you will. Uh, so uh, let's say you are at 30 hours a week in a full-time job. That's kind of slacking off, isn't it? <laughs> and, and then you go from, but there's a big performance improvement if you go from 30 to 50, okay. right? On average per week. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, so there, you know, more is better, really. But from, here's the interesting thing, but from 50 to 65 hours per week, that improvement is still going up, but it, it goes up very little. You don't get a lot of bang for your buck in that space, in that phase. And beyond 65 hours on average, our data suggests that the performance is going down. So you keep on piling on hours, believing, you know, you're really doing extra work. And in fact, that's when quality starts going down, error rate starts going up, and work is deteriorating. It's not improving. So my takeaway from that data is this. Work about 50 hours per week, which is hard work. That's not slacking off. That's hard work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, give or take is about 50, depending on the job and the role. And then work differently, not more beyond that. That's what the data suggests. You know, it's working smart at 50 hours. It's not going to 65 or 70. The finding from your study that you said had the single biggest impact on performance is that the highest achievers do less and obsess. Tell us about that. Yeah, so this is a really interesting insight. It starts with uh, do less. And again, it's not about working less. It's not about working four hours a week, obviously. It's about narrowing the scope of what you do. And to be able to go all in on the very few priorities. And that's a choice. The first part of that is choosing the priorities, which is hard for people. Uh, You have bosses who give you more to do, so it's hard to say no. It's really hard to pare down the priority list. But once you have done that, you think, oh boy, I, I have a great priority list here. It's only three things on my sheet of paper now. But that's just the first part. That is not enough. Because if that's all you do, and there's somebody, a colleague or a competitor somewhere that is doing more, they get more done than you. What you have to do in the second step is to do that obsession part. You have to go all in, dedicate your effort, targeted intense effort on those few items. And so you got to obsess. That's the second part. And then there is a third part, which is if you're only going to do a few things, you better work on the right things. So the question then is what is the most important thing? 
and we need some guide to tell us what should I be working on. And what we found in our study is a guide, and it's called value. Pursue value, not goals. Now, we can talk a little bit later what, what is value exactly. But so many people are pursuing uh, their goals, targets, metrics that are not really the best value-adding activities. So this principle is choosing a few things, obsessing over those, and go for value. That's what this sets these performers apart from the rest. So give me an example in terms of setting goals and making sure you're focused on value. Because I think of a lot, you know, a lot of our listeners are, they're CEOs or they're HR VPs and they're designing performance appraisal systems or even just team leaders that are helping their folks set goals for a year or a quarter. And so I think this is really key. Make sure they're not just based on performance, but what, but, but, but value. Right. There, there's so, so many uh, non-value add metrics that CEOs and other leaders set. So give an example. I was having a conversation in my study with a CEO of a fairly large company, a 10,000 person company. And he told me the following uh, story. So um, he went to the, they make industrial equipment. So they need to produce this thing and send it out to their corporate customers. So he went down to the logistics department and um, the, the shipping, the docking system and say, okay, how are, are these orders going out on time was the question. And they had a whole set of metrics for that. So he went to this shipper and, and he looked at his data and the shipper said, you know, the guy running the, the, the outbound system, and he said, yeah, 99% of our equipment is going out according to schedule. Oh, wow, that's pretty good. <laughs> 99%? But then, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, but then he did a survey with his customers, the CEO. And the customer said, no, only 65% of that equipment arrives when we need it. So that's a value metric. Is that equipment coming to the customer when they need it versus when it's coming, going out of your shipment department at, according to your internal schedule, which was the metric that they had focused on? Mm-hmm. They'd optimized around that, not what the customer uh, needed and when they needed it. Okay, so it was no longer 99% you know, performance. It was 65% performance, which is pretty lousy in today's world. You know, one third comes way too late. Mm-hmm. And that's the difference between value because they had an internal goal of their own schedule versus a customer value metric. What is most valuable for the customer? And we see it is all over the map. I mean, give an example. Think about lawyers. The bill by the hour. Right. That's a volume metric. That's not the same as saying, did you get good legal advice from your lawyer that helped you solve your problem? That's a value metric. Value is asking the question, are we creating great benefits for people who are the recipient of our work? Customer supply, or if you're an HR department in a company, it's the businesses that you're trying to serve. Are we creating value or are we just checking boxes? I'll give you an example. I'm a, I'm a professor. So training in HR. Are we uh, checking boxes? Yes, we deliver training. Okay, that's a volume metric. We did our work. Versus are we tracking whether that training was useful and valuable for the businesses as opposed to take that training and do better as a result? Harder to measure, but it's the right thing to measure. Checking boxes and saying we did X number of training sessions last year 
That's a volume metric. It's not value. That's mm-hmm. a difference. Mm-hmm. You know, what you're saying also connects something a little bit later in the book when you're, you're talking to people about uh, re-engineering their, their jobs and at asking that value question, how do I create value for other people, uh, whoever my customers may be, and then where does the greatest value line up with, with my passions? And I mean, focusing uh, on just what I'm passionate about is uh, you have to add that value question there too. And uh, so that when you combine that, then you get both high performance as well as high engagement and, and mm-hmm. enjoyment of, in your work. Yeah, I mean, it's, what we find is that the best performers, they start with value. And when you start with a value question, you start changing how you work because you're decided to focus on something else, which means that you have to change the way you work. Uh, I mean, we have a terrific example of that in the book. Uh, Hartmut Goritz, it's the manager in charge of APM terminals in the um, Tangier in Morocco. It's a big shipping terminal where the big ships comes in, they offload the containers, and they have to go out into the countries. And then, of course, the containers come on. And that is one of the busiest uh, shipping straits in the world. A lot of the goods coming into Europe go through there. It's very, very busy. When he arrived there, that terminal had been adding services, adjacent services to boost profit. So they were doing things like weighing the trucks for customers, uh, helping the customer take stuff out of the containers, like Mercedes uh, spare parts, uh, car parts out of the container, um, extra stuff weren't really producing a lot of profit, but it was a little add-on, but it took a lot of time. It was a distraction. So he said, okay, what's the key value that our customers, the shipping companies, want here? It's very clear. They want to get the containers off the ship and onto the trucks as fast as possible, right? If that container is sitting for another additional week, that's waste. Right. So he said, okay, that's called throughput. How can you get it in and out as fast as possible? So the first thing he said, that's value. Number one. Two, what do we cut out? Well, all these extra services that you guys have been running around doing, spending a lot of time on, it's not the key value here. Take it out. Shut it down. Okay. Now we've got focus. And then question, okay, how do we get throughput better? Of course, we can add money, staff, capacity. Let's see if we can do it without. And so he said, one day I was walking around in this yard. I mean, this is a giant yard. And he said, you know, I'm looking at all this, we have these trucks that go back and forth, uh, these forklift trucks to getting containers on and off ships. And he said, you know, half of them are driving around empty. Why is that? And you realize they go to the ship, side of the ship, they get a container, put it on that truck, and drive it to the back of the yard. And then drive back empty to get the next container. And I said, wait a minute, maybe we can actually then, that truck, find a way, a system, to pick up a truck on the way back, I mean a container on the way back. Hmm. Now the motor became never drive empty, hmm. right? These trucks should always be carrying a container and they create a system for that. And all things of that nature, within three years, they increased that capacity of that yard by 30% with the same resources, hmm. right? No more money, 30% higher throughput. And the profit, of course, accordingly. That is a great example of a leader in a senior position saying, I'm going to figure out what is value. 
I'm going to go all in on that value proposition and I'm going to focus on doing that better. And, and hence his performance. And he was voted a terminal of the year in this large company that has 55 terminals around the world. Great example of a manager who looks for value and then go chasing it. Yeah, that is a good story. Now, if, if uh, so if we're listening to this or reading the book and we agree, okay, we need to focus on fewer things, focus on value, um, how the, the temptation it seems like is to fall into what you call the complexity trap and just keep adding more metrics or more goals to get to accomplish something. And, and uh, I love how you bring in Occam's razor to kind of help people get some clarity on that. Yeah. I mean, just, uh, I think managers, what they do is that they, they want to improve things. Obviously that's the job of a manager. And we think that the way we should improve things is to add things more metrics, more initiatives, more committees, more product features, right? We're adding things. Well, there is another way to think about improvement, and that is to take away things. Many managers, they operate in large corporations that have been around for a while, and so they have added clutter over the years of things that were great to do 10 years ago, but no longer really add value. So the question is, you know, what can you take away? Is really the question. I'm working with a large high-tech company here in Silicon Valley, right now and they uh we're doing an executive education program for them and in that program they are doing projects and they came up with a great project it's called a subtraction project mm. they are charged with finding all these activities in the company processes routines bureaucratic forms uh, all things that they're doing they're not really adding value anymore and therefore they could stop doing them so um having a subtraction project as a leader is a very nice ways to, to try to add more value, right? We're doing less, but we're adding more value. I would recommend that every leader out there should go through a team and saying, I want to have a subtraction project where the key goal is to say, take away to add value. And this isn't just uh, an idea you came up with. This is, this is from the data that the highest performing mm -hmm. people mm -hmm have a, a narrower work focus, but they do that narrower uh, really, really well. In fact, you, you say they obsess, they, they get obsessive about it. Did you, wh why that word obsess? It sounds like a negative word. It is. We think of obsession as a, some kind of a pathology. And of course, it can be, right? I mean, it's a, it can be a mental disorder. I'm not talking about that, <laughs> right? But you have to... Um, be really good at a few things. And that's the thing where we're analyzing the data, that if you're going to have a narrow work scope, you've got to be exceptional in the few things you do. So take, you know, I don't talk about Apple and Steve Jobs in the book. It's not about that, but it's a great example that everybody knows. Steve Jobs was famous for focusing on a few things. And if you look at it, at least when he was around, there was one phone. But if you look at how can that one phone compete against Samsung that has 50 phones, mm -hmm. right? It sounds like 50 phones is better. It's a, po it's a phone for every uh, taste and purse, right? It's better, right? Right. Seems like well, that one phone needs to be so exceptional, so incredible that it will trumpet all the other phones, right? And that is what he did, right? He went all in on one phone, but he has to obsess over the quality of that phone. That's where his obsession comes in. 
And, and that's where great work um, happens. Now, what does obsession mean in the workplace? It means paying fanatic attention to detail. It means going the extra mile to perfect things. It means looking over your PowerPoints three times before you go in and present. It means rehearsing before you present an important meeting, not one time, but five times, right? That's obsession. And that's where the greatest performance comes from. Now, you can't obsess over many things. You simply do not have the time, right? If I'm doing 10 things, I cannot obsess over 10 things, but I can do it over one, two, maybe three. So that's the reason why. And this is in the data, right? So the statistical analysis, it shows that people who choose to focus, but they don't obsess, perform far worse than the people who choose to focus and obsess. Yeah, and what surprised me about, and you point this out in the data too, so you got that that lower performing group. They 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 focus so they do less but they they also achieve less <laughs> and uh they're 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 slackers let's let's say mm-hmm. um their performance uh as rated by managers and others was actually uh about the same as the people who attempt to do more yeah. but they're stressed yeah. out about it. they're the overworked person yeah yeah i i think the person who the, the people who do less and then they don't obsess. I wouldn't call them slackers, but they are sort of not putting in that extra effort, right? Mm-hmm. They're sort of, the average effort is mm-hmm. what they're putting in. Uh, those are the people who come in 40 hours a week because that's what's called for. Uh, but it's interesting, it's absolutely interesting that there is another category, which are people who are taking on a lot of things, right? And then they stress like mad to be able to accomplish all of those things because that's hard work. You know, you say yes to so many things, and you got to have that evening phone call, you're working over the weekends, you go home late, because that's the only way you're going to be able to cope with all that work that you have taken on. And in that category, you would think, well, they're going to perform well because they get a lot of this stuff done, even though they stress about it. Turns out they're getting about the same performance and, and those people who are able to prioritize, but they're not putting in average work. And um, it's interesting. I'm in that category, by the way. I take on too many things. And I stress a lot to get them all accomplished. And I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to learn from these role models in this book. And, and my wife is in that category of, of sort of able to do less, hmm. but, but putting in average effort. And she teased me when she saw that data that you pointed. <laughs> she said, you know what? We're about the same performance and my life is a lot better than yours <laughs> because I don't stress as much. But, but what it means for us is that this, this idea of taking on so many things and then stressing out to accomplish them, it's not the path to great performance. It just isn't. And I'm trying to change my behaviors. And, and so both of those lower performing, I keep calling them lower performing, but they're, they're actually like 52% percentile. So they're yeah, basically average. average. Uh, average. And then when you, when you looked at the people that, that focus on less but obsess about it and, and get with excellence, uh-huh. um, this like I think you said like eighty five percentile. I mean that's a yeah, huge yeah. There's jump. a big twenty five to thirty percentage difference. I mean it's a difference between being great at work and being just average. It, it that, that that is the difference, and it's a big difference. And uh, and that's why um, you know there's a big opportunity for people like me who can and and many other leaders out there 
And because when I show this data to leaders, they say, yes, that's me. Mm-hmm. And it's my organization. Mm-hmm. It's not just me as a leader. It's like my people, most of them are working this way, but we're not getting the performance. I think based on this data that if you're a leader out there and you want to increase productivity and performance in your organization, this is the one lever you have. And it is not a lever that requires more money. It requires discipline and clarity of action about being able to really hone in on these priorities and go all in on them and look at value. It's a management intervention. It's not something that requires you to go to your CEO or go to your board and say, we need more capital (laughs) here, right? It isn't. We think about, okay, how can we get more productivity? Well, just change the way we work is a huge upside. And and here, you know, most of the discourse today is, well, the way I'm going to get productivity is automation. It is artificial intelligence. It's machine learning. It's to get some kind of robots in here. (laughs) Well, yeah, at some point that might be true in many in many areas right that's the future work that's what we talk about but there is another avenue for the next five years and that is to change the way we work according to this paradigm and we will get the productivity it's a great lever for leaders there's a i guess a fear in the back of my mind and i bet a lot of our listeners have it too that if i do this if i if i start saying no more often and keep my work focus more narrow uh, that my boss is going to pers- perceive me as unhelpful. My teammates are going to see me as unhelpful. Uh, if I am a boss, then you know my 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 whole department is going to be made up of unhelpful people. And yet, in, in the data, it's those bosses when they when they look back, they rate these people at the eighty five percentile or, or better. Mm. So it it just blows yeah. my mind that absolutely. It, but it's an interesting dynamic. People have a fear of saying no, mm-hmm. and it's completely understandable. It's very difficult. Your boss or a colleague comes to you and they say, you know, can you take on a full assignment? And you know that you shouldn't be, but you also know that if you say no, they're going to have a kind of a perception of you that is not positive. And if you say no too many times, you're going to say, well, that's a bad team worker, right? He's not helping out or she's not helping out. But here's the thing. If you say yes because you're afraid of saying no, you're setting yourself up for failure because now you're taking on too many things. And it's going to backfire on you because those things are not going to be do, done with great, um, great quality. So, folks, I see this all the time. So let's say you're working on two projects and you're your hands full and then you get a third project. Right? Now comes the time to present on the first project. And you haven't really had the time to focus on it. So you show in a presentation and you give a PowerPoint presentation on say, let's say it's a marketing project of, of a new product and it has holes in it because you spent your time on the third project. And now your boss is sitting in a room and the other is sitting in a room saying, that's not a high quality presentation. So now it has backfired on you, right? So it will backfire on you sooner or later. So there is a different tactic and that is to say no, but you have to learn how to say no. If you go to your boss and saying, you know, sorry, I can't do that third assignment there, and you leave the room, the boss is going to say, wait a minute, you're not really taking on the work here. What you have to do, regardless of your level in the organization, is to go to the boss, it could be your CEO who's the boss, and to say, you're asking me to do these additional things, 
what do you want me to prioritize now? Should I change the priority list you already gave me? Should I extend something? Should I stop something? And I'm asking because I want to do excellent work. And excellence comes from doing a fewer things really well. So what do you want me to prioritize here? In other words, you're putting the question back onto the boss. And that, after all, is what management is about. The job of a manager is to set clear priorities for people whom you're leading. That's the job. And it's totally fair to put that question back on the boss. And that's what the top performers do in our study. Uh, so you've got to learn how to say no. I think one of the critical skills to become a great performance in today's workplace is the skill to say no to the right things in the right way. Yeah, it's, it, it, this topic of the managers, um, when you dug into the data and you saw what are some of the reasons that get in the way of people being able to focus, mm -hmm. uh, one of the top problems was uh, you called mm -hmm. them pesky managers that, that mm -hmm. uh, are just... Mm -hmm that um, are undisciplined and, and um, are not helpful in keeping things focused. How do yeah. we avoid becoming that, that pesky manager? Right. I mean, you know, senior managers and junior managers and CEOs and leaders of all kinds, they have a particular burden and that is, or a particular opportunity. That is to say that if they are focused, they provide focus for the rest of their organization and they will do better. If they are unfocused, then they, they will just cascade downward and people would struggle to focus. So I call them do more bosses. They're always you know, thinking that I need to add things and add priorities. I mean, their priorities list, they grow, they don't shrink right. uh, during the year, right? And of course, they're under pressure too. But that is the job of the manager to call that list and provide a clarity. It's one of the greatest levers, um, levers a manager has, which is to say, I can set better priorities here, and it will cascade down. And so it starts with, with the manager. Now, another thing a manager can do or a leader can do, when somebody comes to you in your office and says, um, and, and try to be a do-less person, saying, you know, I, I don't want to do that third thing or because, you know, I'm already doing two things and I want to do them well, is to give them the benefit of the doubt. It's not to go to this gut reaction of saying, you know, they are slackers. They don't want to take on more work. They're not hard worker, right, like the rest of us. It's to say, well, maybe there's something here, right? I'm going to probe and see, is it really about being not, not wanting to do more work or is it because they want to be excellent? And if it's the latter, you know, I should help them do that. Let's talk about priorities now. And then and, and, and that is the route, route to performance. And it's interesting you point out that a lot of the top four performers actually had the boss who was the opposite of this do more boss. I mean, they, they were good at setting specific goals yep. based on value, at providing clear direction and having smaller priorities. That, that There was a correlation. You can be a better boss and it actually produces better performers. Yeah, about a quarter of our uh, people in our data said that they have a do less boss. Somebody's really good at it. And about a quarter says that they complain about their do more boss. And then you have something in the middle. But so you see both kinds and then you see the difference in performance. So if you've got one of those pesky do more bosses, um, it's, and it, it can be painful in the short term to say no, but uh, you, need to, you need to figure out a way to do that uh, without coming across as a slacker 
to otherwise your boss is inadvertently going to push you into that lower performing group, the do more, stress more group that ultimately is not really um, doing anybody a favor. Right. Exactly. Hmm. Well, we've been we've been talking about the this idea of um, doing more, uh, but obsessing and then obsessing about it. So we're, with narrower focus, with greater um, uh, quality, if you will, greater excellence. Uh, but another of the really interesting findings from the book has to do on collaboration. That is totally, I guess, uh, the opposite of convention. Not what you'd expect. I mean, you'd expect to say collaborate more. That's the key to great performance. But that's not necessarily what you found. No, uh, there are two sense of collaboration. One is one is under collaboration that you need to break down the silos. But there is conventional wisdom out there that collaboration is a good thing, and the more of it is better. And we did not find that. We find the opposite. Less collaboration is better. Now, you know, there's a saying out there, you should bust the silos in a company. All right. So, you know, that goes to the metaphor of a corn silos, right? That's what it is. Okay. So think about the picture in your mind of busting corn silos, like say five of them. How does that look like after you busted them? (laughs) There's just a lot of corn on the ground, right? It's a mess. And that's what a lot of companies are today. They are over collaborating. And they're collaborating on the wrong things of marginal value. So you have an overextended company with too many projects going across, too many committees, too many meetings, and people are spread thin across the company. And over-collaboration has become almost like a disease. And one of the problems is that it's hard to say no to collaboration. But that, again, we got to collaborate on the right things that produce value and say no to the rest. And one of the problems we discovered in our study is that when you over-collaborate, what happens is that you are under-resourced on those collaboration projects. People don't have the time, they don't have the resources to do those collaboration projects well. It's sort of like the night shift the day job is your day job inside of your department, and then there's all these other committees and, and, and projects that you have to do in the evening. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's setting things up for failure. So again, what managers have to do is to call the collaboration project and just do fewer, and then put the resources on them to do better. And, and that's an exercise in discipline. So you should collaborate less in order to do better. Yeah, it seems like in a lot of organizations, people, this collaboration culture, if you will, ends up with their days uh, get are filled with back-to-back meetings. And it, it's almost as if, hey, if we're in a meeting, we are by definition creating value. We're getting work done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I've just been in those meetings and it's like, wow, the sheer amount of waste. This, is, this doesn't need to be 10 people in this room. Like one person could have done this work and then let everybody else weigh in in a much shorter discussion but this uh and and they're so close to it that they don't see the ridiculousness of having 10 people actually just you know writing a memo or something like that Uh, absolutely and that's our finding too i love that mug that is out there you know it says on the mug it says i survived another meeting that should have been an email (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) that's a nice one but this is what we found in our study um Meetings are incredibly ineffective for the most part. People, as a result, hate going to many meetings. And, and here's what the best people do. They use meetings for intense debate. There's only one reason to really call a meeting, 
and is to have a rigorous discussion of the right people in the room on a topic where there's a collective wisdom in the room that can make a better decision than a person and a manager can do on their own. That's the only reason. You should not have a meeting for a status update or just to share information. That can be put in emails or memos. Now, the problem is that people have poor debates in meetings. They don't have a rigorous debate. And we found that all over our study. So if you have a bad meeting where you don't conclude on something, what's the consequence of that? The consequence is a follow-up meeting. Right, another meeting. <laughs> to continue the bad meeting you had before. It's a total waste. We, told, we found people who said, you know, my boss runs bad meetings. The consequence is that my boss schedules another meeting. And that one is bad too. So we got a third <laughs> one and sometimes a fourth one to solve a topic that should have been solved in the first meeting. So the crucial skill that any leader or manager needs is to be able to orchestrate and run a rigorous debate in meetings. That turns out to be difficult. Some people do it really well and a lot of people struggle. For example, the people in a room who have really good ideas but don't speak up. How do you get them to speak up? How do you as a manager make sure it's not biased in the favor of what you think? So we have people um, in our study, you know, they complain about their boss that comes into the room and says, you know, here's what I think we should do. What do you guys think? <laughs> of course, it's going to be biased by what you think. You should start with an open-ended question, a non-leading question, which is, here's what we have to discuss. This is the problem. What are the options? I would like to hear what you have to say. Now you're opening it up. You're inviting debate. That's just one little technique. And there are many others that they could deploy. Uh, but this is, we don't need, we need fewer meetings, but we need better meetings. That's because meetings, after all, if you bring together the right people, seven or eight people in the room that need to debate an important decision, we know that that could be a very effective way of managing because you're drawing upon the collective experience and wisdom of those people. And you can be fairly quick in making a decision. And if you can do that, it's a great way to manage. But today, most meetings are a waste of time. So this is maybe, this is another lever that, that can improve productivity enormously. Let's just have be fewer but better meetings. What's the one or two things that your typical manager could do to drastically improve the quality of their meetings? A few things. First of all, set a better agenda and a shorter agenda. If you're going to debate, you need the time. Two, send out preparation material in advance and, and quality material, not too much. Third, demand that people come in 100% prepared. People are unprepared, you have a sloppy discussion. They got to be prepared. Number four, expectation. We are here to debate and speak up and I invite dissenting voices. Five, ex spend extra time getting, extracting dissent and, and minority views and contrarian views from um, the group that is in the room. And number six, scrutinize assumptions. If you're going to set a price for your product in a meeting, there are certain assumptions around that price that you're talking about. And if somebody says, you know, it should be $25 for this product, and then, you know, you take the criterion view and you say, no, it should be lower, it should be $15, and say, are you crazy, 15? 
okay, what are your assumptions when you're saying 25, right? Because assumptions are, you know, oftentimes where people get into trouble. They assume certain things and then they turn out to be wrong and the whole thing falls apart. So those are some of the techniques where you can actually drive a better meeting. Ah, very good. So have fewer meetings, make them better meetings, narrow work focus, but do better at it. I think that's going to be helpful and good news for a lot of our listeners. The book, again, is Great at Work, How Top Performers Do Less, Work Better, and Achieve More. Our guest has been Dr. Morton Hansen. Morton, how can people get their hands on your book and find out more about you and your work? Our great place is to visit my website where we have some additional resources uh, for you, and that is www.mortenhansen.com, and Morton Hansen is spelled M-O-R-T-E-N-H-A-N-S-E-N. Terrific, and we'll put a link to that in our show notes as well. What are, what are some of the things that folks can find there, the extra things? Well, we got a couple of resources there. You can take a quiz that sort of assess yourself against the seven principles and see where you're good and where you can improve. Hmm. Uh, we got a few kind of uh, small sheets with some um, exercises. Like there's one on, on the five ways you can improve value, and you can go through that little worksheet to see where you're doing. Things of that nature, tools that can help you do better work. Fantastic. Well, we've only been able to cover a little bit of what's in the book. I definitely encourage everybody to get the book Great at Work. There's a lot there. Um, it's very highly credible based on the data. Lots of good tools and, and tricks in that. Dr. Morton Hansen, thank you for being on the show with us. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. All right, Engagers. As I said, we will put a link to Dr. Hansen's website on our show notes, as well as links to his Twitter and LinkedIn, other social media information. Um, you can find those show notes on our website at engagingleader.com forward slash 167, as in episode 167. This is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm that specializes in workforce communications. My colleagues and I partner with mid-size and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. In several areas, including talent management, workforce health engagement, benefits and compensation, business transformation, and more. Find us at AspendaleCommunications.com. Our thanks to Monica Harrison, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Max Brody, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, in the 21st century, the real movers and shakers aren't just leaders, they're engagers. <laughs>